0: Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Most people imagine that the inner kingdom, as Jesus described it, lacks the fascination they attribute to sense life, the bright lights, the diverse attractions, the joys and the laughter. Little do they realize what a vast universe exists in their own selves. There are many passages in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible that describe aspects of this inner kingdom. The book of Genesis, we read, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This garden was in no earthly place, it existed even now. Excuse me. It exists even now in the very self of every human being. The legend of Adam and Eve is allegorical. It describes how the first human beings dissipated their spiritual energy centered in the spine. The spine is a channel through which flows the river of baptism of the spiritual life. The Bhagavad Gita tells us. The Y speak of the eternal Ashwatha tree, with its roots above and its branches below. The tree of life spoken also in Genesis is the spine. Its roots are above in the brain energy. Its branches are, are the outward spreading nervous system. When the sap, which is to say the energy, flows downward, the consciousness is drawn into delusion. On the other hand, when the energy is drawn upward in deep meditation, the consciousness is drawn towards its eternal source, God, and is at last united with him. Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita therefore urges his chief disciple, Arjuna, to embrace the yoga science, the path of meditation. The yogi, he says, is greater than the ascetic, greater even than the follower of the path of wisdom, jnana yoga, or or of action, karma yoga. Be thou, Arjuna, a yogi. For those who would find the divine truth, Krishna gives this description of the yogi. Steadfast, the lamp burns, sheltered from the winds, steadfastly meditating, solitary. Such is the likeness of the yogi's mind shut from sense storms and burning bright to heaven wherever you are whatever your outward beliefs and observances seek god in the silence of your soul thus through holy scriptures god has spoken to mankind oh
1: Good morning everyone. We'll begin with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, a Book of Prayers and Poems by Paramhansa Yogananda. This goes with our subject of the inner kingdom and in meditation. Teach me, O Spirit, by meditation to stop the storm of breath, the skipping of my mental restlessness. And all the sensory disturbances that rage on the lake of my mind. Let the magic wand of my intuition halt the gale of passions and unnecessary desires. In the rippleless lake of my mind, then, let me behold the undistorted reflection of the moon of my soul, glistening ever with the reflected light of thy presence. One of my favorite um, lines from Yogananda's teachings is a, like a prayer or an affirmation that I've said many, many times in my life, and it is this. Life is a struggle for joy all along the way. May I fight to win that battle on the very spot where I now am. Well, the question is, how do we win that battle for joy? And the person who is the materialist, uh, looking to the outer kingdom, is looking for things out there that can make him happy, but they never quite stay in his hands. They always just slide through. It might be in a matter of minutes, it might be in a matter of days, They never stick, and nor do they go deep enough. And I read a cute story of this yesterday. Um, A man ran into his friend on the street, and he he said, golly, you look kind of sad. What's wrong? And the man said, well, three weeks ago, I found out that I inherited $100,000 tax-free from my grandfather. He said, well, that sounds pretty good. And then he said, Two weeks ago, I won a sweepstakes for $20,000. The man said, Well, that sounds pretty good. And then he said, Last week, um, a relative that I didn't e- even know I had died and left me $50,000. And the man said, Well, that sounds fine. What's wrong? He said, This week, nothing. <laughs> it's just it never it never is enough it's never enough <laughs> so those of us who are here we've started to get the picture that it just doesn't work to find happiness outside and we've begun to look inward to meditation and to practicing meditation and to finding And I have to say, when you're very new to meditation, you don't necessarily feel all the excitement that as Bart was reading the reading, that it's so full of excitement. In the beginning, it's a little challenging. But I have to say, if you stick with it, you discover that the inner kingdom is filled with joy. It's filled with love. No love outwardly can touch the love that you can feel inwardly or the joy that you can feel inwardly. And so we want to keep looking for it. Our, we found it, I would say, probably everyone who's still here, and people who've come here, they stay because they're finding what they want, and they're finding it inside. I think some people think that, oh, people at Ananda are so happy because they live in such a beautiful place. How could you not be happy? But you know... The reason it's such a beautiful place is because of this inner kingdom. It's because of people seeking to find their happiness first inside, and then it expresses outwardly. Um, I was thinking of our teacher and founder, Swami Kriyananda, was just a great, great example of living in this inner kingdom. Because over the decades, his body, as he got older, took on more and more karma to help uh, 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 Ananda's uh, success. And his body would be ailing in so many different ways. And yet, his joy, he said, I just have so much bliss, I can hardly stand it. One time, I was working for a short time um, at the Crystal Hermitage for him. And he called us downstairs, and I actually felt almost like I was walking into a swimming pool of joy. It was like the the air was, uh, the bliss was like a, a thick, you could feel it. And he he said, you know, I have to tell you, my body is so ill today, I can't do any work. And he was explaining what was wrong with his body, and I was very sympathetic about his body, but inwardly I was kind of going... How is this even possible? So much, so much joy from going inward instead of outward. So this is what we're looking for, and this is what we're seeking, and how do we find it? The first thing is we have to want it, and we're here because we want it. And so the great scripture of uh, yoga, the Yoga Sutras, begins with the words, now we come to the study of yoga, Yoga is the means, it's a technique, not yoga postures, but yoga philosophy, yoga meditation, gives you the techniques for finding where you go into that inner kingdom. And it's not that easy to find without techniques. But I was reading um, yesterday an email that I had received actually a few years ago from a man who came here and took a meditation class. It was very interesting. This man had um, um, high blood pressure. He was in his 40s, a very fit-looking fellow, but it was a genetic situation, and so uh, his whole family had high blood pressure, and so he controlled his blood pressure through diet, exercise, and meditation, and it had worked fine for him. But in the last months, though he was still doing all the same thing, his blood pressure was rising, so he thought he should come on retreat and maybe see if he could get some new tools. So in the meditation class, we went through the Hongsa technique of meditation, um, and then he said, uh, which he actually knew that technique, and then he said, um, what do you think about meditating uh, lying down? And I said, well, um, if, even if you don't fall asleep uh, when you lie down, <laughs> which mostly people do. Even if you don't fall asleep, it, lying on your back usually makes you more passive and it usually makes your meditation more subconscious, more drifting, more dreaming, and you aren't able to touch superconsciousness, which is what we're trying to achieve in meditation. And he didn't say much, but at the end of his time at Ananda, he told me something very interesting. He said, you know... Um, As I said, I've been controlling my blood pressure through meditation and and so forth. But in the last few months, I had gotten lazy, and I decided that I would do my meditation on my back, lying down. And he said, after you told me that, he he, he checked his blood pressure every day because of his condition. He said, after you told me that, I thought, oh, I better sit up to do my meditation. He said, I did, and immediately, he meditated in a different way, his blood pressure went down. Isn't that interesting? He said, and then what he wrote me in the email is he said, even after I got back to Los Angeles, I had a lot of stressful things going on, my blood pressure stayed down. So yoga gives us tools that can help us. Um, Yogananda said something interesting. He said... Actually, I, I wanted to quote Lahiri first, because Lahiri said, um, solve all your problems through Kriya Yoga. Solve all your problems through Kriya Yoga or through meditation, is our form of meditation, Kriya Yoga. And how is that possible? It's possible because meditation pulls us in to the level of superconsciousness where problems don't exist. Problems exist in the material world, the emotional world. When we're living on the level of our subconscious mind, of all the things that have happened to us in life, all the things we've absorbed from the world around us, we're stuck in the past, and that's the, uh, subconscious has a lot of different definitions, but that's what I'm talking about when I say it. All that of the past that holds us into um, a lower level of our being when we're living in that world, there's a lot in the world of problems, and the conscious mind actually will reflect that. How we relate to the world outwardly is going to be influenced by everything from our past. But when we can touch this upper level, which we call superconsciousness, where we touch a part of ourself that is not influenced by anything outside of us. We are not confined by the outer world, and things change in our world around us. And I know many of us have experienced that in our life. But Yogananda, what I started to say is, Yogananda said fascinating thing. He said, 75% of your life is conditioned by your past karma. It's just going to happen. You don't have any choice. But 25%, you have choice. And you have to exercise that choice or else the past will just roll on out. The karma will come as it's been predestined. But we have that ability to choose. But how do we get to that ability to choose? If we're locked up into all the things of our past, the mistakes we've made, all the sad and dreary things that have happened to us, we're just gonna roll out that 75% as it's already been determined. But if we can actually touch that upper place inside of ourselves, we can make some clear choices. He said it involves free will. Uh, Using your free will, using your energy, using your ability to choose. We have to do that. And that allows us to lift our consciousness. Um, I was... I read a story of, uh, that's in Bharat's new book. Um, it's not really about meditation, but when you tell the story, you'll understand how it applies to meditation because it, 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 uh, it shows you the kind of thing we're looking for in terms of inner freedom. There is a wonderful scientist. Uh, you may have heard of him. His name is Richard Feynman. He's quite a personality. He won the Nobel Prize for Physics. And he was teaching, uh, he was researching neurophysics and teaching uh, at Cornell University. And he came to a point in his life where he just felt burned out on physics. He just said, I'm just, I'm just tired of this. He said, I, now that I'm burned out on physics, no, I'll never accomplish anything. And he was, he was really uh, feeling bad about that. But then he reflected on his life and he said, you know, I have always found physics to be so much fun. To me, it's just, I got into it because I loved it. I thought it was fun. I'm going to put aside all my serious work, all that thinking about physics. It's so important and all these things that need to be found out. He said, I'm just going to have fun with physics. i got to get my joy back. So he was in the dining room at Cornell University and someone took a dinner plate and... Uh, threw it across the room like a frisbee, and he noticed that as the dinner plate flew across the room, it, it wobbled. And he also noticed that the uh, the red Cornell um, logo in the center of the plate was moving twice as fast as the outer edge. <laughs> he's, a, he's a physicist, and so. He said, I wonder if I can come up with the equations that describe that wobble and describe why that center moves twice as fast as the outside. And he just, there was absolutely no point to it. And that's what he loved about it. He said, great, I'm just having fun with physics. And so he started, I can't even imagine what he was doing. But anyway, he... (laughs) But he was finding it out, and he literally wrote the programs to show how, how this whole thing worked, the, the wobble, the, the speeds, and so forth. And he showed it to a friend of his in the physics department. He said, look, Hans, look what I figured out about why this dinner plate wobbles. And the guy looks at it, he said, yeah, that's very interesting, but, but what, the, what is the point of that? And Richard Feynman said, ha, that's it, there is no point. <laughs> that's exactly why I like doing it. And, and, but here's the interesting thing. He got in this flow, and he was having so much fun, and then he realized, you know, the movement of the electrons, there's some similarity here. And he took those equations and he began to apply it to neurophysics, to the field that he'd been studying in. And do you know what? That's what won him the Nobel Prize. The dinner plate. That's what opened up his consciousness to this other level of how to leave behind the rolling out of old, old energy and step into something free. And that's what meditation can do for us, when we can lift our consciousness to this upper level, this other level. Bharat and I were um, uh, running the Ananda Center in Palo Alto for a few years, in the very early days of the Palo Alto Center, the foundational years. And I used to teach a four-week meditation series. And on about the third week, Somebody, this couple came up to me after class and they just said, we have to tell you how five minutes of meditation a day has changed our life. And I said, this, I gotta hear. And they said, you know, th- it's Palo Alto, so everyone works in these very high-level computer uh, uh, software uh, or heart- businesses. And they worked in different businesses, a lot of pressure in their jobs, I think they were management, whatever. And they said that what we used to do after work, we'd come home, meet at the front door, come in the house, one person would be grumbling about all the stuff that happened at work that day, and then the other person would jump in and chime in about what was horrible happening at work that day, and then back and forth, they made dinner together, that was the whole night. Grumble, grumble, grumble about the day. And they said, now what we do, we come home the first thing we do, we go sit in our meditation room. We meditate for five minutes. And they were able to lift their consciousness to that free space. And they didn't, they didn't feel what, what the day was anymore. They were in a fresh, they had a fresh start. And then after that, they had fun, they made dinner together, they had a relaxing evening. It was a total change from touching this fresh level. Well, what is one of the biggest things that people complain about, about meditation? You think it's only you, but the truth is, it's everyone. (laughs) My mind is so restless, I can't meditate. But you know the truth is, our hearts are restless. It's our hearts that are restless. Our hearts are where we generate desire and we generate many, many, many different kinds of desire. Everything from obvious things, take care of our family, perform well at our job, make our house look beautiful, anything you want, T- to more emotional desires. so I hope people like me, whatever it is. All those desires of the heart, how do they get fulfilled? Well, your mind's got to figure out how to do it. So your mind is busy going, "Oh, what am I going to do about my job? Oh, what am I going to do about my children? Oh, what am I going..." It just keeps going on and on. But if we can work to quiet the heart, it's going to have a huge effect on our mind. And during this weekend, I had this thought, and I put it out a little tentatively to all my long-term guru eyes in the room because I've never really heard Swami or Yogananda say this, but I really feel that devotion is a is a technique of pranayama, energy control. We are our path of Kriya Yoga is a technique of is a is a path of energy control, withdrawing the energy inward and upward. And what is a huge help for that? Directing your heart's energy inward and upward and your the rest of your energy will follow. So I wanted to say just a little bit about devotion and also let you know that um, after the service at the chant, at the musical part, we're going to hear a beautiful song that Ramesha will sing for us that Swami wrote called Love is a Magician. And this is a song of devotion, of great devotion. And when you listen to it, I encourage you to listen to it with your eyes closed. Don't, don't listen to it as a performance of a beautiful singer, nice words. Listen to it with your eyes closed and just feel what's in that song. And I wanted him to sing this because Swami Kriyananda, uh, who is a man of tremendous accomplishments, he started all of the Ananda communities around the world, wrote over 150 books, 400 pieces of music, uh, just tremendously accomplished, was asked what is the greatest, what do you see as your greatest accomplishment? And he said, love is a magician. Now did he mean that this was like the most complex song that he'd written? No, it's not that complex of a song. What he meant was to have the devotion, to have the longing for God, to be able to feel that song to be able to want to express that song, that is what his whole life was about. That was the greatest accomplishment. And so we'll listen to that. But cultivating this quality of devotion, if we're looking for the inward inner kingdom, this is going to be a huge help to us. And I I won't go into the things that we usually talk about when we talk about devotion, which is spiritual company. Uh, which can help us so much, which is chanting, which can help us so much. But I wanted to say a couple of other things. One is the minutes are more important than the years. Think about the minutes in your life. Everyone in 21st century is busy. It's a very busy time in the planet. Busy, busy, busy. But there are always pauses. And what do we do with the pauses? Can we bring our attention inward? Can we focus on love? Can we focus on the quality of joy? Can we practice, as Yogananda said, making love to God in just this moment? Oh, I could be with God while I'm waiting here at the doctor's office. I don't have to flip through a magazine. Yogananda called them fillers, you know, you just things you do mindlessly. Hop in the car, turn on the radio. Oh, I have some quiet time in my day. How can I fill it with God? Um, So looking at those pauses, read something by Yogananda before you meditate in the morning. I have to say, I just can't believe how much that has helped me in the last year. It's just been a tremendous blessing to the meditation. Why? Because it gets you moving, your energy moving inward and upward before you start your meditation. Even if you've done your energization exercise and even if you're doing your Kriya, here you have this other form of pranayama. Um, uh, I know, this was what I wanted to say. Um, Yogananda said, never meditate alone. Never meditate alone. And you say, well, that's easy for you. You live in community. I live in Kansas. No, that's not what he was saying. (laughs) He was not saying you had to have other people in the room with you. He was saying never meditate alone. Make sure that you are remembering that Master is with you, that Divine Mother is with you, that God is with you, and just feel that in your meditation. Now we have time to be together. And the last one is never give up. As long as we keep doing this, we have to find it. If you just keep putting out energy, the fog will lift. I have to say that um, speaking as someone who started meditation with about as restless a mind as is humanly possible, if you just keep doing it, you begin to find, even if your mind stays restless, you begin to find the joy is there you begin to find the love is there. So don't even worry so much about your mind. Do your best you can to do the techniques, but just keep focused on doing it. Joe Tish was in uh, India and gave a talk that I just happened to listen to part of it, and I was so touched by it. He said that the spiritual path is a a process of ripening. Ripening. In other words, you don't you can't make yourself be more than you are. You can't make yourself love God more than you are, but you can help the process to ripen. So an apple on the tree might go, what is taking me so long? I've been here for three months already. I should have had this ripened. I should have been ripened a month ago, two months ago. But, but it's just a natural process. But we have the advantage that we can make choices Things that will, what, what makes something ripen? Uh, needs uh, water, needs nutrients, needs sunshine, needs warmth. The water, the nutrients, that's your daily meditation. Just keep nurturing that piece of fruit, that apple, just keep nurturing it on the vine. And and then make choices to put yourself in an environment where the sun is shining, where God's presence is more easily found, like coming to a place where there are other devotees, like being around the warmth of spiritual companionship. Just make the choices that will help to nurture that ripening and then let it happen. And don't get um, frustrated by it. Don't become... uh, uh, Don't lose hope. Yogananda told a beautiful story about a man who planted a bush in his backyard. And it was a flowering bush. And he put it in the ground, and he watered it, and he put nutrients in it, and no flower. And he just thought, well, I'll just keep watering it. I'll just keep putting nutrients in. And no flower. Year after year, no flower. And at a certain point he thought, maybe I should just take this bush out of the ground. And then he thought, no, no, no. All in God's time. I'll just do my part. My part involves watering. My part involves feeding. And I'll let nature take its course. And one morning he woke up to a beautiful aroma. And he'd forgotten all about it. But there on the bush was just a beautiful flower. And now Yogananda, when he told that story, I believe he was talking about the flower of self-realization. But I think for us, we really can find flowers every day. Once we, we have to invest, we have to invest in our meditation. It doesn't happen automatically. We have to be loyal to it. We have to persevere. We have to keep putting out the energy. But bit by bit, when you're not looking, when you're not um, uh, asking that flower, that bush, where are the flowers? When you're least expecting it, you find these little flowers of joy, flowers of your heart opening, flowers of more love, and your life becomes more and more filled from seeking your happiness in the inner kingdom. May your search be blessed.
2: Love is all I know Sun rays on the snow of a winter long, in darkness without sun. Oh, my heart's a fire, burning all desire. too long i did stray flung lifetimes away imagined you did not care i know now your smile was mine all the while i listened and loved there. I can't breathe for love, all the stars above, call to me, come home, my swear. What a fool was I to turn up. It's true. stars above, call to me, come home, life's worth.